Welcome to the Rural Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Larson. Today we're with Ed Robertson, host of the Mountain and Prairie Podcast and Conservation Director at Palmer Land Trust in Colorado. We're talking about Ed's journey from real estate and the business world into land conservation, the podcast community that he's built, and the important work of conservation and how to get involved. We also touch on the unique opportunities rising up in rural America as a result of COVID. So here we go with Ed Robertson. Okay, well, we're here today with Ed Robertson of the Mountain and Prairie Podcast. Ed, I'm so excited to have you on our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey, where you grew up, and your path to get where you are today. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy long story, and I'll, I'll try to uh, keep it keep it somewhat short and not boring. So people don't just like turn the thing off, uh, 30 seconds in, but, um, yeah, I'm from Eastern North Carolina, a really little town, uh, called Tarboro, which is kind of halfway between the state capital state capital of Raleigh and the beach, uh, grew up there. My family's been there forever. It's really, as we were talking about before we started recording it, there's some really interesting people doing interesting work there that you may want to speak with at some point, but it's a really great place to grow up. I mean, I think for people who aren't familiar with Eastern North Carolina, it was almost like a, like a Mayberry type place, just a, a really neat, neat place. My family had been there for generations, um, uh, grew up there, went to school there, uh, went to college in North Carolina, um, worked, worked in North Carolina for a few years right out of college. And I was kind of doing the normal, the normal path that, that people do, uh, when they're not really thinking about it. <laughs> and I was, I, I like worked in finance for a while with like Merrill Lynch and UBS and some of those big fancy banks. And then I got into commercial real estate, uh, in the research triangle park area, selling office buildings and stuff like that. And, you know, it's a good way to make a living. Um, and it was good experience, but throughout the whole time, I just had this urge, uh, and this thing in my head of like, I need to go out West. I need to go out West. Ever since I was a kid, I was just kind of obsessed with the big mountains and, you know, I just read an outside magazine, like a crazy person. And just, uh, I wanted to be out West, but like I say, kind of half joking, but it's really, it's actually pretty true is, I think at age 22, I, I took myself too seriously just to go be a ski bum like I should have. I was kind of keyed up. I was like, I need to, I need to wear a suit and be a grown up, you know, make some money and you know all that kind of stuff. Where I could have skipped, give my, saved myself a lot of hassle if I had just uh, gone out west and been a ski bum. But anyway, um, so I was selling commercial real estate and had kind of made up my mind, like, all right, I'm going to move out west. And I was 20. 6, 27 at the time. I was like, I, I don't care. Like, I'm just gonna, if I have to go out there and wait tables, I'll do it. But I'm, I'm kind of ready. I need to scratch this itch. And, um, I just started, uh, I started looking around for jobs and I found out about a job called a ranch broker. It's like, what there's, there's like real estate agents for ranches. And so I started looking into it and, you know, started sending off my resume to a bunch of different uh, ranch brokerage companies thinking that I could convince them that selling an office building in Research Triangle Park <laughs> somehow <laughs> translates into selling a, you know, a, a hundred thousand acre ranch. But I, somehow I might manage to convince one to hire me in Jackson Hole. 
And so in 2005, I packed up and uh, moved to Jackson Hole and was, it, it kind of coincided with the real estate boom. And um, it was, uh, you know, it was a great experience professionally. It was a great experience because it got me out West um, in these, you know, these places that I'd been reading about and want, you know, rarely visited, but I had visited a few times and it was great. Um, you know, kind of fast forward, I went back to business school and I can, I can dig into this later, but went back to business school, got an MBA and then uh, eventually came back out. And now I've kind of taken a, a 180. I'm still in the land business and still dealing with ranchers and farmers, but I'm on the conservation side of things. And I'm the conservation director at Palmer Land Trust. And we really work uh, in the southeastern quadrant of Colorado to protect um, farms and ranches, open space and recreational uh, open space. So it's, it's an amazing job and I love it and it's, it's challenging and it's hard and it's has purpose. And so it's, and it's a lot different than what I started out when I got out of college thinking I was going to do. So anyway, yeah. I, I'm like, that, there's, there might be a book in there at some point because it's such a, there's some crazy stuff in there. <laughs> I think there should be. Absolutely. So would you say you've always had a love for the land or is it just something that's grown on you over time? I'd say it it's definitely grown on me over time. I mean, like, like the real, like the love aspect and the respect for it. Um, I've always loved the outdoors, you know, ever since I was a kid. I mean, that's all I did was play outside, whether it was climbing, you know, hanging out the top of magnolia trees. I think the the majority of like age first grade through third grade, when I wasn't in school was spent at the top of this magnolia tree in my, <laughs> in my yard. And then it trans transitioned into this ditch that went through our neighborhood. And so I was just, you know, I was always into camping and hiking and fishing and just being outside. I mean, that's, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I'd say most of my, the most meaningful experiences in my life, um, other than family experiences have been outdoors, um, in, you know, in the mountains. Um, but, you know, my, and so this love of the outdoors and of kind of adventure and, and pushing myself hard outdoors is what led me to move out West or one of the factors that led me to move out West. But, you know, when I was selling ranches there in Jackson Hole, I was working with real estate developers and I was kind of facilitating their, their uh, transactions and they're buying these beautiful ranches and then eventually, unfortunately, tearing them up and subdividing them or building golf courses and that kind of thing. And I didn't, you know, I wish I could say I saw what I was doing, but I, I didn't. And the, the craziest thing about it all is that the whole reason I went to business school to get my MBA was to be a real estate developer. Like that was, yeah, I mean, it could not be more different than what I'm doing now. I was, you know, it was the real estate boom, you know, 05 to 07, everything was crazy. These people were making so much money and I just kind of got caught up in, in that. And I was like, well, if these, if these developers could do this, I could do this. And so I went to business school solely with the sole intent of being a real estate developer. And I got an internship at some fancy real estate development company between my two years, I, they hired one intern and I, I got the job cause I was, I mean, I was so focused on getting it. And then, so I was in Washington DC, you know, wearing my fancy suit going into the office. And then I had a really terrible uh, health scare during that internship. I'd been there like three weeks and I went to the hospital and they're like, uh, you got a tumor and we got to cut that out of you. And so it was, um, 
you know, kind of a kind of long story, but ended up being fine. Um, you know, I recovered fine from it, but it, it, it kind of gave me this almost like a midlife crisis at age 30, where I was, you know, it was a combo of having that health scare with that was 08. So the economy was starting to dive. And so I started seeing that all these developers I'd worked with, you know, bought up these ranches, subdivided and built golf course and then declared bankruptcy because, you know, the, all the whole real estate development world went upside down. And so I was sitting there thinking, well, you know, I help, I contributed to that. You know, I helped them buy those places. And this is, you know, I was, you know, I, I'm guilty in some ways as guilty as they are of, of tearing up these places. And the whole reason I moved out there is because I love these wide open spaces. And here I am having contributed to, to the bad side of things. And so, you know, it wasn't like an overnight switch, like you hear some people say, um, you know, like, oh, this happened and then I saw the light, but it was, it was kind of a slow process, but I realized that I needed to be spending my time on conservation and, and I had, I had these real estate skills and at the end of the day, land conservation is real estate. That's, that's what it is. And so I was able, you know, I can use those skills for the better. Um, and so it was you know, came back out West. My wife and I actually lived in Costa Rica for a year, um, which was a, a formative experience and then moved back out West. And I started doing more and more conservation work and I was still brokering ranches, but, but doing it with a conservation focus and like helped Crested Butte land, uh, Crested Butte um, mountain resort, conserve a big property of theirs. I helped Eagle County buy a big, um, buy a big property and that was conserved and, and, just really got into the conservation side of things and then eventually made the switch over to full-time conservation, which is what I do now. So, um, you know, it's kind of this, unfortunately I had to kind of get shaken up to really see how important land was to me, but it's, it's always been important, but now it's kind of like all I do. I mean, it's the, the focus of my work. Um, so it's, and it still gets more important. The more I do it, the more I realize how important it is. Yeah. Well, tell us about, Palmer Land Trust and your work there. Yeah, Palmer is a it's a great organization. As I was on the board of directors, um, and and uh, went to I went to a board meeting and then toured some of the the work they were doing, and uh, and then in about after about three months, I, I went to them and I was like, hey, do you think do you think I could work here full time? <laughs> and so I transitioned off of the uh, off of the board into a full time um, staff member, um, but it's a it's a really wonderful organization. Been in business about forty two years, um, a regional land trust. But we operate in southeastern Colorado, and we do everything from. We were just talking before we started recording about Red Rocks Open Space. You know that place has been conserved by Palmer, which is cool. And then what I do mostly is work in our agri on our agricultural land. So I work with farmers and ranchers to um, conserve their properties. And the, the interesting thing about Palmer is that, you know, like if you look at the nature conservancy, they're a wonderful organization, but a lot of what they do is, is, is science-based, you know, they, they, it's based on ecology, um, which there's a definite need for that. And they do great work and they're a great partner of ours. But what Palmer does is focus on community. So it's kind of this intersection of the people and the community and the land. And, you know, the, I say intersection, but they're, they're so deeply entwined that it's hard to kind of separate them really. And um, so again, like I mentioned, mostly what I do is working with farmers and ranchers and I, I'm the head of a project we're doing right now called the Bessemer Project, which is trying to figure out how to balance water use between growing municipalities and multi-generational farmers. 
because out west, I mean, out here, there's there's a limited amount of water. And so as cities expand, they need water to expand. And the only place they can get water is by drying up farms, which generally does not lead to a good outcome. And so what we're trying to do is figure out a way so that cities can expand. We, you know, we're not, we're not anti-expansion, anti-economic growth, but we don't want cities to expand at the, at the cost of drying up farmland because these farms are the, the lifeblood of a lot of these communities. And there are some really bad examples of what happens when you start drying up farmland and what it can do to a community, both you know, culturally, economically, environmentally. There's really no good outcome that, that comes from it if it's done incorrectly. And so what we're, we've, we're doing this really, really innovative project that's really exciting to kind of do it in the right way. Um, and so it's, it's been really fun. I'm learning a lot. It's really hard, um, hard in a good way. I like, when I say that, some people look at me funny, but like, that's kind of how I define if, if, I, if something's good, if it's hard. <laughs> and so it's, it's hard and the team is great. Um, Rebecca Jewett is the CEO of Palmer Land Trust and she's been on my podcast twice. So people can go and listen to her and she's, I mean, she's the reason I went to work there because she's, she's dynamic. She's a big thinker. She's a great leader. And, um, it's, yeah, it's been, it's really, really just been an awesome experience that I would have never imagined I'd be doing. You know, I thought 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I thought I'd be a hotshot real estate developer. And now I'm, now I'm doing the exact opposite and it's, it's great. I mean, purpose-driven work is, is amazing. Absolutely. It's funny how life works out like that, isn't it? It is it's bizarre. It's, yeah. I mean, who would have ever guessed any, I, any of it, that the podcast, I mean, it, but it's, that's why it's cool, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think conservation can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And some of that's based on where you live too. So what does conservation mean to you? You know, I, on my podcast, I asked, I used to ask people like everybody that question. And then I realized like, I don't know, I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know what it means. I could talk. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I, I do think it can mean a million things, you know, it can mean save the whales to somebody or save the, the rainforest in Brazil. But I think the best, like, kind of the, the most succinct quote I've seen is Aldo Leopold wrote, conservation is a state of harmony between men and land. And, update that for our time between people and land. And I think, um, I think that's the best way to put it because I'm not at all. I used to be when I hadn't thought about it um, deeply, I used to think, Oh, if you conserve, like conserve a, a 50,000 acre ranch, that would equal get everything, get all the people off of it and get all the livestock off of it and just let it be a quote nature preserve. But then the more I learned, like that's not at all good, especially in Colorado. I mean, you need ruminants, like cows, you know, bison, whatever on the property to, for the health of the grasslands. And so, you know, there's no way around it that people are here on earth and that the earth has a relationship with people and you can't find anywhere in the whole world that hasn't been affected by people. And so it's a matter of finding this balance between people and the land. And, you know, that's like a lot of my work now is, is related to that. You know, we're dealing with farmers and there's irrigation and there's machinery and, or, or with ranchers, they're, you know, they're grazing these lands. And so it's a matter it's, it's how do we find that balance? And there is no right answer and it can change a hundred times. It'll probably change over my career a, a lot of times and it can vary depending on the circumstances, but, you know, just trying to find that balance between people and land. And I think you could back it out even farther than that and just say community and land, because that's, that's what it all boils down to. And I feel like our, this current crisis we're in with COVID highlights the, you know, it's highlighted the, the need for open space and the need for 
for people to get outdoors and it's highlighted the need for food production. And without those, we kind of, we're, we're kind of in a bit in big trouble as a species. We can't have food and we can't get outside. It's not good. And so it's, it's a matter of um, finding that balance. That's great. So if people want to educate themselves about conservation, where do you recommend they start? I would say you start, start local, you know, start where you are. There, there's something like 1300 land trust in the country, I think. And they vary in size. You know, I think Palmer is, as far as acres conserve, Palmer's in the top 20, um, as far as land trust, we've conserved almost 140,000 acres of land, but you know, th- there's some land trusts or, or one volunteer. And, and so, I, you know, I think no matter where you live in the country, you can find a conservation organization that's doing work where you live. And, you know, some of the stuff around land conservation can, it can come off as being kind of boring sometimes because a lot of, a lot of it is, it's real estate transactions, you know, it's deed restrictions and all this kind of stuff. And you, you can just see people's eyes glaze over when you start talking about it. But at the end of the day, it's about protecting places that you love. And I think it's hard to really love a place unless you've spent a lot of time there to really love it to the point that you want to protect it. And so, I, you know, start in your backyard, like we were talking where I'm from, Tarboro, North Carolina, the, the Tar River runs through there. And that's where I used to fish and canoe. And you know, I spent a ton of time there. And there's at least two or three organizations in the state that are strictly devoted to conserving the Tar River. And, and that can mean different things. It can mean conserving land along the edges. It can mean doing innovative water work. But you basically find somewhere that you love and then get on the, the old Google and, and try to find some people that, that also love it. And they're probably, they're probably um, working to, to protect it. And you have to work to protect because if you don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like suit one of these conspiracy people or anything, but the thing is like, there are, there are people and forces that are, that don't want these places conserved mm-hmm. and they got a lot of money and power behind them. And they would rather see them used for other things, mostly see value extracted from them. And they don't understand the value of open space or of farmland and that kind of thing. And so there needs to be a counter pressure to that, to that force. I mean, we're seeing it big time with public lands now, but it's also, it's just as strong, if not stronger with private lands, which is what I do. So start local, find something you know about and, and something that you, that you don't need to spend a lot of time learning about and just, just jump in. And, and the other thing is all these, these conservation organizations are lean. And so they need help and they need volunteers. They need board members. They need people that care. And um, I always kind of knew that in theory, cause I used to be on a lot of boards, but now, I, now that I'm in it, like I know it even more having engaged board members is huge. And so, you know, that's the second step, find something local and then, then say volunteer, say, Hey, I want to help. How can I help? Um, there's always need for help. That's great. I don't get to listen to a lot of podcasts just because I don't have a lot of time, but one that I do listen to is yours, the mountain and prairie podcast. So how did that idea come about? I'm guessing it's birthed somewhere in this whole transition into your conservation world. Yeah. Well, I, in some ways I, or actually in a lot of ways, I credit that podcast with getting me to flip the switch to officially move over from the business world into the, the conservation world. Um, but yeah, so when I was selling ranches, um, you know, I was selling all over the, all over the West. And so I was driving a lot and I would listen to podcasts a lot. I mean, I used to listen to podcasts in like Oh five before anybody, like you had to download a computer and then put it on the iPod and then plug that into your tape deck in your car. Like it was a big, and so anyway, I'd been listening to podcasts for a long time and I, I, I loved them. 
And I, I just kind of occupy all, I have my, my feet in a lot of different worlds in Colorado. Like when I was in the ranching, I was in the ranching world selling ranches, but then I was also in the conservation and kind of like the environmental world. And sometimes ranchers and environmentalists don't get along that well, but I could see that they had a lot more in common than not. And just these, these labels cause people to not be able to kind of see the commonalities. And then like, I, you know, I read a lot of books, so I, I kind of in that world. And then I was also like in the ultra endurance running world doing these, you know, long runs in the mountains. And so I just, I knew all these really cool people and this, it was this common, like if you think about the Venn diagram, this common um, theme was that they loved the American West, you know, the landscapes, the people, the communities, and they had so much in common. So I just thought, I bet, you know, I'd go to lunch with these people and it'd be these super interesting conversations and they'd be gone. And so I thought, wow, I'll just, I love podcasts. I'll just give it a shot. And I thought about it for like a year before I did it, you know, and, um, I wish I had done it. I wish I'd started a year earlier than I did, but just started, I started with interviewing people I know. Um, and then it just, over time, I, I started meeting new people and it expanded and expanded. And I think the, the first year, the first year of doing it, like, if you look at the number of downloads I'll get like in, in two days now, it equals the entire first year. <laughs> and so nobody listened, you know, but, but it slowly caught on. And um, I think it resonates with people just because they're just all these interesting people doing interesting work and they're all really good people and they're all driven by a mission by, by they're driven by love of, of what they do. And they're um, you know, some of them are, are super, super wealthy. And some of them live in their cars, but none of them are driven by money. None of them are like, I want to be, I want to make a lot of money. They're driven by their craft or by their passions. And sometimes that equals money. Sometimes it doesn't. And they don't really care, you know, cause they're, they're doing what they love. So it's, it's been inspiring. I think seeing those people and getting to know them and really getting, developing some good friendships with them. Um, I think that is what kind of finally forced, you know, gave me the the confidence or the knowledge or whatever to quit with the, you know, the business side of things and just do what I wanted to do. You know, cause if I could do anything, it would be conservation. And I, I wasn't doing it because I felt like there wasn't earning potential there. And, um, I'm so glad I, I made the switch. So yeah, podcasts, it's been great. It's, I can't believe it. I don't, I feel like I don't, like we were talking about before. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know anything about media or radio or I'm not a good talker. I say, um, and you know, and like a lot, but it's, it's resonated with people for some reason. So it's, I'm thankful for that. Well, I love it. And I know that you've interviewed a few mutual friends that our listeners will know about James Decker and Allison Ryan, which was another recent podcast. What would you say is the best part about the podcast? I'd say it's the, the net, you know, getting to know all these people and kind of the, the community that is built up around the podcast. And it's, it's very, it's very strange um, in a good way, but you know, like yeah, James Decker, he, he is awesome. And he's, you know, and I met him through the podcast. Like he listened to the podcast and we somehow connected and I saw what he was doing and I was so, um, uh, you know, I really admire what he, what he's doing down there in Texas. And, and then, you know, Allison, I met her, you know, Jay, her, Allison's business partners are, are Jay and, and Jess, who were longtime friends of mine. But even, you know, even Jay and Jess, I've known them for 30 years, but the podcast allowed me to reconnect with them because we, and we've, we've got these mutual interests that, you know, we may not have had back when we were in high school together, which is crazy. Um, 
but I'd say that, yeah, definitely the community. I mean, I've just gotten to know all these really amazing people and develop some legitimate friendships with them and learn from them. You know, I, I, I say it um, kind of as a joke, but it's actually true that the podcast is completely self-serving because I just want to talk to these people and I just want to learn kind of how they operate and why they do what they do. And I've learned a lot from all of them. They're, they're really um, inspiring people. And I think when you add it all up, if you, you know, you, there's, there's some really great lessons that can be applied no matter what you're doing or no matter where you live. You know, these people just, just happen to love the West, but I mean, I think there are lessons there. I get, I get emails from people like in New York or LA and, you know, in these big cities that are, huge fans of the podcast because they learn so much from all these people. And I, you know, I don't have anything to do with, they're not learning anything from me. They're learning from those people. And so it's just a matter of asking the right questions and, you know, putting out, putting out, uh, you know, actionable, actionable info that people can, can learn from and use. And so I'm just, I'm really thankful that people have found it because it's, it's really been the probably the most fulfilling professional thing I've done. I mean, it led to my job at Palmer, you know, they, they listened to the podcast and that's why they asked me to be on the board because they knew me from the podcast. And then it, and so it, it, it has all, you know, all the good stuff that's happened to me, I'd say in my career recently is all goes back to the podcast. So I'm just glad I, half the time I'm so damn embarrassed when I listen to myself talk and it just drives me crazy and I don't want to put it out there, but <laughs> I'm glad that I was able to get over that and just get it out. Cause it's the, the rewards have been amazing. Yeah, I agree. You kind of have to just put that to the side. Although I think you do a great job, but there's just something when we hear ourselves talk, right? <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. I think if you didn't think that you'd be crazy. Yeah. You know, like I think who would, who would sit around like, Oh man, let me just listen to myself talk for a few hours. Here. Yeah. This is, I'm yeah. so good at this. <laughs> yeah. You'd be yeah. like Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. But I totally agree about the about this podcast as well. And it's to me, it's such an honor to be able to share these stories. And I mm -hmm. think that's what hits me most all the time is just like, I feel honored to be able to do this and to get these stories out in the world and to, to meet these people and know them. So same. Yeah, I'm the exact same way. You know, it's about half, you know, I'd say half of my people that I have on the podcast are, are well known in their circles. And then the other half, you know, may not be as well known, but they, they should be. And, and so, you know, now that the, the thing actually has some people that listen to it, um, I, it really is. I mean, I do consider it a real honor to be able to shine a spotlight on some of the important work these people are doing. Um, and that's the cool thing about the internet is that it allows that to happen. Like it's not this, you know, there's not this mass media, like no, you can drill down to whatever your specific interest is. And there are a lot of people out there that share it. And so, you know, you can shine a spotlight on these, on, on these people that are doing really interesting work and there's an audience that wants to hear it. Um, it's really a powerful thing. I, it's, it's hard for me to get my head around it in some, some ways. Yeah, me too. Well, you've gotten to do some fun events around recording your podcast in front of a live audience. Yeah, I, I never considered um, that that would happen. And when I was in business school, I remember like the most terrified I was, was we had a public speaking, we had to do a public speaking class and had to talk for five minutes in front of my class of like 10 people. And I thought I was going to throw up. <laughs> it was awful. Um, and so the idea of getting up in front of hundreds of people never would have crossed my mind, but I was, so I'd been doing the podcast for like two years. And then I got an email from 
somebody at the Aspen Institute, which in my, you know, kind of weird uh, world of interest, there's nothing I respect more than the Aspen Institute. It's just the, the smartest people. And I've just, I've just in awe of, of the whole organization. And so I got this email from the guy at the Aspen Institute and he said, Hey, we're, we're doing a four day event about the history of the American West. It's going to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. We want you to come and we want you to interview Hampton sides on stage in front of 500 people. And I was like, first of all, Hampton Sides was my favorite author. And, um, and then the Aspen Institute's my institute's my favorite place. And I, I thought it was one of my friends playing a joke. Like I looked at the email address and I said, this is not, this is not real. And, but it was real. And I went up there for four days and I, you know, you look at the brochure and my picture is right alongside like Hampton Sides and Dan Flores and Sarah Dan, all these people that have been on the podcast and got up there and, um, talked about the book blood and thunder, which is one of my favorite books with Hampton and didn't make a fool of myself, allowed Hampton to do his thing and got out of the way. And it was a, it was a wonderful experience. It was great. Um, got great feedback from the people at the Aspen Institute who have no reason to, to not, you know, to, to say anything other than what they exactly think. And so it just, it went really well. And, um, I, it was fun and it was great. And, uh, and so I just started, you know, I had some I have some friends and acquaintances that are kind of have like legit really big podcasts that do a lot of, um, do a lot of live events. And I started talking to them and I just decided to try to do one in Bozeman. So I, I did one in Bozeman that featured four women that had been on the podcast in the past. And they're just really amazing women doing really cool work. And that, that episode is on my webpage if people want to listen, but it was, it was great. Um, you know, the, the sold a lot of tickets, people showed up and then we had a, had a big dinner the next night. That was a Friday night and then had a dinner the next night on Saturday with just people that have been supporting the podcast. And it was like all these, all these great people and just this huge community of really cool people that I would not have known were it not for the podcast. I mean, there wasn't a single like high school friend there or anything like that. I mean, it was just this <laughs> huge community that had developed around the podcast. So it was just a really neat thing. And I was supposed to do a lot, a lot more of them this year, but obviously that's on hold for a while, but we'll see when things get back to normal or whenever the new normal, uh, whenever we can figure out what the new normal is, I hope to do more because it's, it's fun. It's really, really fun. I love that. Well, you've alluded a little bit to this, but you are an avid reader and you post a monthly or bi-monthly book list of some of the books you've been reading about the American West. What are some of your all-time favorite books? Because, I mean, I see those lists and I want to read them all, but I don't have the time. So I want yeah, to know yeah. what are the well, best funny books that I should read first. Yeah, and it's funny because in college, I don't think I ever finished a book that was assigned. Like, I don't, think, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't doing what they were telling me to do. And, and now it's almost like a, I read like a, kind of crazy Um but I'd say the most the most important book I've ever read is The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris. It's the first in a trilogy about the life of, the, of Theodore Roosevelt. And it's from his birth until the moment he assumes the presidency after, uh, or it's really the moment he finds out that President McKinley got shot and that he's going to go from being vice president to being president. And I read that soon after that health scare that I'd, I'd mentioned. And so my wife and I, we were dating then we got married and then we lived in Costa Rica for a year because my wife got a job down there. And it was kind of a transitional time for me trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And just, I don't know, just uh, kind of a, a transitional moment. And so I read rise of Theodore Roosevelt and I'd had it, I'd owned it for like 10 years and I hadn't read it. And 
started reading it. And you, know, you can say what you will about Theodore Roosevelt or his politics or whatever, but as far as his operating system, like what he did, how he lived his life, that really struck me. You know, he talks about the strenuous life and about pushing yourself hard and how much, you know, how, how much you can do if you are focused. And, um, I just, it really changed my perspective on, on what is possible. And just really like, if you think about an operating system, it changed my operating system and not, not instantly or anything like that, but I feel like that, that laid the groundwork and I'm really obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt. Um, but just everything he did, you know, the way he, he was, obviously purpose-driven and what he was able to accomplish before he was president. You know, I mean, he, he was a, he was world-class at at least five or six different careers, you know, other than president. I always say his time as president is the least interesting thing he did. I mean, he was, he, he just, he managed to do a lot and he, he, I just really admire the way he operated. So that I'd say that's the number one book. Um, As far as books about the American West, Blood and Thunder, the one I mentioned earlier by Hampton Sides, that is just a, a really good book. And that was kind of one of the first history books about the West that I read that I really loved. And um, I've gotten to know Hampton pretty well. And he's just, he's a great guy, just a great guy and a, a immensely talented writer. And um, so if people want to just want to learn about the American West, that's a, that's a good one. And with Kit Carson, getting kind of re-examined as he, as he often does. But in this moment in history, it, it's a good thing to learn about Kit Carson because, because Hampton doesn't give him any breaks. You know, he, he paints a very accurate picture of the guy. Um, and then, you know, as far as Theodore Roosevelt, another good book I just read, and I just released a podcast with the author is called leave it as it is. Um, and it's about Theodore Roosevelt and his work with public lands and conservation. And it's a very timely book because some of the the downsides of Theodore Roosevelt, like his treatment of Native Americans, uh, David Gessner, the author, really looks at it clearly and doesn't make excuses for any of his his behavior. And so um, that's a great one if you want to learn about public lands and the history of public lands. But I got a million lists. I think there's a list on my website. I wrote one up and it was like the 20, the 20 most important books I've read in the last 10 years. And so there's, um, but the thing is, even since I wrote that, I've already read some other ones that were super important. So there's, there's literally like hundreds of recommendations on my website. So yeah, you can check it out. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes. I love it. What excites you most about the future of rural America? Because you, you're working in that every day and with the people who live there. So where do you see the most opportunity? Yeah, you know, in my world and what I do all day long, um, the thing that excites me, and it's it's a result of COVID. You know, it's crazy that, but what that we're in the midst of this pandemic and how it's upended upended everything. But I'd say there are some bright spots, and the world is going to be different when we're coming out of this. And so it's you know, I think rural America is actually in a pretty good spot, um, for, for figuring this thing out and for offering some solutions. You know, one of the things that I've talked about ad nauseum for, for years is the importance of food production, local food production, food production within the U S how we don't want to be importing all of our food from other countries. And you're, you talk about it kind of ad nauseum and people seem to agree with the theory, but don't think about it deeply. And, you know, you don't have to, I would always say, you don't have to think too many levels out before it becomes a national security issue where if we're importing all of our food, you know, we're, we're at the mercy of all these other countries. And you would say that and people would agree, but that was kind of the end of it. And then, you know, mid March of this year, 
it took about five days for people to really get that concept deeply in their psyche. And they understood it very, very clearly because they go to the grocery store and there's nothing there. And they're talking about the, 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 you know, the meat processing system collapsing and just, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, where are we going to get our food? And um, like real food, I'm not talking about the, the processed stuff. I'm talking about real food. And, um, and so I feel like, you know, in my world, there's nothing but upside for farmers. Um, I mean, it's a tough business and there's millions of factors that, that make it a tough business, but I really think there's an opportunity to, you know, there's, there's, there's a, um, the public is very aware of how important food production is now. And so a lot of these rural communities, I think farms that, you know, what, what used to be uh, this open field that a real estate developer might think, well, I could put a bunch of houses there and make a lot of money. I think the community would rather, they, they see the value in it being a farm now. And so I just think there's, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And then, you know, I think a lot of people are seeing that cities may not be as great as, as they thought they were um, for a lot of reasons, but in, in some ways it just doesn't work. Like you can't go on public transportation. So from what I hear, a lot of people were reevaluating city life and with everything going remote, you know, why sit in an apartment paying all this money when you could be, you know, in a smaller town, enjoying life and doing the same work. And so I think you're going to, it would be great if we see a lot of these people, you know, in cities moving into rural communities because they want the community um, and they want a better way of life. And, you know, you hear about brain drain, you know, that's the term you hear with these small communities, um, like where I grew up, but it's almost like the reverse is going to, could, could happen. I don't know, you know, we'll see what happens, but it's almost like, I don't know what the reverse would be, but all these, this human capital descending into towns. And so when you get, you know, you get money, you get the creative ideas, new ideas, um, building on the foundation that a lot of these rural communities have already established. So I think there's, I think there is opportunity. I mean, I, like I, I, th- I, because of all my reading of history, you know, when you look at any crisis, there are winners that come out. There, there will be winners that come out of this crisis and things are going to change. And so, you know, I, why not be the winner? Why not make rural America the winner? Because somebody's going to win. So, and it isn't just going to happen. So there needs to be focus there. But I think, I think there's, there's nothing but upside for, for agriculture. Um, you know, I, I shouldn't say nothing but upside. There are a lot of factors that, that make that a challenging business, but the public understands it now, which I, I can't say has been the case for even in the last 10 years since I've been working in it. Yeah. And with so much technology too, I just think it's really neat to see how farming has evolved because of that. Oh yeah. It's amazing. One of the, the kind of my, one of my mentors um, out in, in Eastern Colorado in the lower Arkansas Valley is a guy named Dr. Mike Bartolo. And he's been very helpful for me as I've kind of tried to get my head around farming. And he, he uh, runs one of the research stations for Colorado state university out in Rocky Ford, Colorado, which is as rural as you can get, but you go out on this place and like, they've got a whole field and there's this little like manhole in the middle of it. You can go down in the manhole and they've got, the whole field is on a scale. And so they can like measure rainfall and measure. And it's, it's some of the most high tech stuff you've ever seen. And they've got all these different plots where they're measuring different sunlight and figuring all this stuff out. And, so you think that's this one little town in, in Eastern Colorado that you, you, if you, you could drive by it in five seconds on the highway. And so you, 
I just wonder how many different things like that are happening throughout the West um, or throughout the whole country. Really. It's, it's really inspiring to see. And, and people like Mike, they don't want any attention. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want any, they're, they're not like egomaniacs. They're not trying to like blabbing about how great they're doing. They're just doing their work mm-hmm. and it's really making the world a better place. And it's, it's really, it's just so inspiring to see and, and to spend time with people like that. Cause it rubs off. At least it, it's rubbed off on me. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of the farmer way of life is this humbleness and they don't want to talk about it, but I think it's important for them to talk about it because we need to know about that stuff that's happening. I agree completely. And you know, every, yeah, they're just, they're so committed to what they're doing because they're, you know, they're not, they're in it because they love it. Cause that is a tough, 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 tough business. And there are just so many factors that are out of their control and, I learn a lot just by hanging around them. Just again, talking about like the operating system of Theodore Roosevelt. I think the operating system of a lot of farmers, it's almost like this Zen, Zen (laughs) outlook on things where they, you know, they focus on what they can control and don't get too hyped up about what they can't. And uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from them. And, you know, at the end of the day, you talk about essential workers. I mean, <laughs> there's yeah, nothing, right? there's nothing more essential than what they're doing. They're producing food. I mean, I think food and and air and water. I mean, that's as basic as it gets, and and that's what they've devoted their lives to. So it's it's really um, it's inspiring, and it's inspiring for me to get get to spend time with them because it's it's really uh, it's fun. I learn a lot. They're funny. Uh, it's just a it's a good deal, and they accept me with my Eastern North Carolina accent. They don't they don't kick me <laughs> off their property. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What's next for you and for Palmer Land Trust and for the Mountain and Prairie podcast? Yeah, well, on the Palmer front, uh, we're it's all systems go. It, it's amazing. We're, um, you know, I think a lot of organizations and businesses are kind of hunkered down, you know, during over the last four, five, six months trying to figure out, you know, just trying to keep it together. And the great thing about Palmer and, you know, our leadership under Rebecca and the team we have in place is that we're expanding. Um, you know, we, we're, we're going all full systems, all full systems ahead. And, um, so is we just got a, a big grant from great outdoors, Colorado to hire two new people, um, one to, to work, exclusively on that Bessemer project that I talked about and then one to expand some of our open space. And we actually just had a new uh, employee start today. And so I feel like, um, you know, people, like I said, people have seen the importance of open space and they've seen the importance of farming. And so we've luckily been able to fundraise around that and we're going to be able to expand our work. And I think, you know, again, back to my study of history, when you look at a lot of the biggest businesses in, in the United States or in the world, a lot of them started during times of crisis, like during the depression or like all these dot coms that are doing so great now. They, a lot of them started during, you know, Oh seven, Oh eight, Oh nine. And, and so I think if you can figure out a way to expand and to keep going forward during downtimes, there, there's a, there are going to be huge payoffs to that down the road. And so that's what we're doing at Palmer and we're doubling down and we're going, we're going really hard and we're hiring new people and we're expanding. And so, you know, there is risk involved in that, but we're, we're focused on that. And so there's going to be a a lot of opportunity when things get back to, back to normal. So I'm very excited about that full, full plate of work at Palmer. And then for the podcast, just continuing to crank it out. You know, I try to, I try to do an episode every other week, meeting all these great people. I'd love to write a book at some point. Um, I don't, I've got two little girls and 
my wife and, you know, I try to exercise a lot and I do a lot of running. And and so it's, it's kind of the, I'm kind of busting at the seams as far as hours in the day, but I think there's, there's a interesting book in all the podcast stuff as far as um, kind of consolidating all the lessons learned from all these interesting people. And so um, I've been working on that a little bit and we'll see, I'd love to do more live events, but not going to focus on that too much now. Um, we'll see what, see how things play out, but yeah, everything is full speed. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know how, I wish I had more hours in the day. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. Or either maybe if I didn't have to sleep, I wish I was yeah. one of these people who only had to sleep like four hours a night, but I, that's not me. I got, yeah. I got like, like they say Theodore Roosevelt was an energetic sleeper. That's how I am. <laughs> I, I like, I'm very serious about my sleep. So yeah, it, it, all good. Everything's great. Good. Well, I just would encourage our listeners to go check out Ed's podcast if you haven't already, because I think you will identify with a lot of the things that you talk about there. So how do we follow along and keep up with the things you have going on? Yeah, you can go to mountainandprairie.com for all the podcasts, and that has links to everything. It has all the book lists, all the old episodes. Um, I have a bi-monthly book recommendation email I send out, and it's so six emails a year, no spam, not joking or not, no funny business. I'm not going to sell your info, but just it's like probably every, every other month I send out maybe five or six books that I've read that are good that I recommend. I recently started a, a, a weekly newsletter different from the, from the books called good news from the American West. And it's only good stories, no negative stuff. Cause I got, I'm so tired of all this negative stuff. And you know, some of this, some of the news that's negative, we, we need to, we need to examine this and we need to focus on, we need to find solutions to problems, but it's overwhelming how negative everything is. And so this email every Wednesday morning, is just a quick email with four or five bullet points of stuff that will make you smile. And I do that again, it's completely selfish. Cause I'm like, I'm going to be positive. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> so, and, uh, and then at Palmer land trust, you can go to palmerlandtrust.org and check out all the work we're doing. Um, but probably unless you live in Southeastern Colorado, you can look at, look at our website, but I would encourage you, instead of going to that, go to your own, go to a land trust in your own, um, in your own community and, and see what they're doing. Cause it's uh, they could use your help. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, I, I would imagine you're the type of person that, that gets things done and wants to be involved and is, you know, thinking about things beyond, you know, watching Netflix or whatever. And so I think, uh, I think you can, I, I would encourage you, come to Palmer Land Trust, see what we're doing, but then find one in your own community. And if you can't find one, send me an email and I, I, I can direct you to one. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. Ed, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been great. Thank you very much. And thank you for everything you're doing. I know how, um, how hard and in a good way, but how hard the, uh, the, you know, keep cranking these podcasts out over time is. And I, I'm very impressed with your podcast and everybody you've had on. So I, I, Honored you had me on. Thank you very much. Well, I love the work Ed is doing both with Palmer Land Trust and through the Mountain and Prairie podcast. And I know I personally have learned a lot through listening to his podcast. I would highly encourage you to go check it out if you haven't already. And we have links to that in the show notes. I'm also really excited to start reading through Ed's 20 most influential books list. And as I finish each book, I'm going to gift it to one of our listeners. So stay tuned for more information on that. I trust you're super inspired from today's episode and probably have a handful of people you know would love to hear it. 
So go ahead and text them the link and leave us a kind review while you're at it so we can keep spreading the Rural Revival message far and wide. And find us on Instagram and Facebook at Rural Revival Co. to stay updated on this podcast and all things Rural Revival related. And we'll catch you next time on the Rural Revival Podcast. Have a great day, everybody.